and allow you to continue to operate. That way, with time, once your operation sustains, you'll be able to bring your business back to life, be able to pay back government and, and sustain your business. And I think if you have that mindset, that is where this fund that the government has put in is really going to have a major impact on the economy. And that senior partner at the KPMG Ghana, Anthony Sapon, there, you're still listening to the Joy Business Report. Now, as government lifts the three-week lockdown, one sector that has heaved a sigh of relief is the domestic airline industry. But what will be the impact of social distancing and personal hygiene, which are among the new protocols issued on their profits as COVID-19 still remains a threat? Well, we assess how prepared domestic airlines are in ensuring your safety, among other things, in today's business journal. The novel coronavirus has literally changed our way of life. The unseen enemy has sent shock waves to economies world over. Movements have been limited and borders closed. This virus, the World Health Organization reveals, became a global pandemic through a major channel, air travels. To this end, hundreds of airlines world over have grounded flights, cancelled bookings in response to lockdown measures by various economies. The impact, as we've seen, has been dire. Massive layoffs with South Africa Airlines being the latest to fire all staff. This is basically the business rescue practitioners putting forward that due to the lack of funding and given the fact that government has not uh, provided additional funding of 10 billion rand, they have no other option but to terminate the entire workforce of SAA and provide them with uh, conditions to a severance package. Here in Ghana, both international and domestic airlines are biting their nails in despair. Much loss accrued since Ghana recorded its first case in March. Dick Van Nuensen is the country manager for the international carrier KLM Air France. Our business is impacted heavily uh, and unfortunately flying in. It is estimated that 70 to 90% of our flights will be cancelled to worldwide network. Because there is a ban on uh, on Far East, there are bans on the USA, within Europe you cannot travel anymore. And flights will be grounded because we simply don't have passengers. Government's decision for a partial lockdown some three weeks ago was really a death sentence for the already struggling domestic airline business. Here's Chief Operations Officer for the Africa World Airlines. The revenues are taking a hit, but of course when you're not flying these flights as well, there is a savings on the cost side as well. We don't anticipate at this time to need to go into layoffs or similar, but we are encouraging staff with outstanding leave balances or so forth to claim their leave right now. Non-essential, non-operational staff are already on work from home and have been for a while. But now the lockdown has been lifted and the condition of strict adherence to social distancing protocols and personal hygiene. By this, domestic airlines can again take to the skies. But authorities have introduced strict measures for all passengers. Here's Samuel Tichy, marketing and sales manager for Passion Air. During the flight or in the course of the flight or before you board the aircraft, you are expected to have your face mask, which you are expected to turn throughout the whole flight. And there also will be ensuring some kind of social distancing uh, during the flight. The advent of COVID-19 has been accompanied by ill perceptions of stigma, misrepresentation, fear and panic. We hear the streets to have a feel of how prospective travellers are adjusting to the reality 
of flying amid potential threats of COVID-19. Yeah, if only social intervals is, yeah, you know, it's on, you can still board. You don't feel scared? Uh, nobody should be social intervals. If those airlines stick with the general social distancing rules and the general sanitizer rules, we can all wear masks on the plane, we have social distancing on the plane, we wash our hands, the crew are well taken care of. I don't see why I should have a problem taking a flight okay. from this place to uh, Kumasi. Business must go on for Ghana's fledgling domestic airline sector. But it will be tough in these uncertain times as passenger numbers drop and cost of operations skyrocket. Well, and that's how we end this edition of the Joy Business Report. I want with me Charles Aite. The locker room is up next with George Ado Jr. This day. As we continue to fight COVID-19 together, Ecobank offers you several ways to stay home, stay safe, and take control of your finances. Use Ecobank Mobile whenever, wherever, with or without an Ecobank account to send money through SMS and email. Also buy airtime, pay bills, and much more from the comfort of your home. For high-value transactions, use our internet banking services. Ecobank QR code enables you to make cashless digital payments when paying for goods and services. Download the Ecobank Mobile today from the Google Play Store, App Store, or from our Facebook page. Additionally, dial the short code star 770 hash from any phone and start transacting. Ecobank cares. Remember to observe social distancing, wash your hands frequently, and don't touch your face. For further assistance, can we call Ecobank Contact Center on 3225 anytime, any day. Toll free. Stay home, stay safe. Ecobank, the Pan-African Bank. In the world of professional tennis, Kareem Hassam was once seen as a rising star, especially in his days of Egypt. In the recording you just heard, however, he's been grilled by investigators who believe he's involved in fixing tennis matches. In this program, I lay bare private word-for-word messages exchanged between players detailing how they planned to cheat and to contrive the score of competitive matches. Bro, you lose the first set, then win the match. You get 2,500. Okay. Hopefully it's okay, because I need the money. God willing, we all need the money, my friend. If you can bet on it, you can fix it. And so international organised crime have a giant appetite across uh, all sports, but particularly easy sports that they can fix. So things such as tennis. Players do say they've been threatened, that their families have been threatened. This is an area of mafia-like criminality. And I'll ask if tennis, as a sport, can recover from what's been described as a tsunami of match-fixing scandals. 
one time uh, how many tennis players they were involved in this maybe 10 and now how many tennis players they are involved in this I think more than 100 more than 200 this is the spreading of the virus of match fixing Chapter 1 The Tour I'm here at the Tennis Centre in Bath University to watch some of Britain's rising tennis stars in action today and also to speak with some of them about the realities of life on the ITF Tour. The International Tennis Federation estimates there are 14,000 players trying to make a living from the sport, half of whom don't make any money at all. The vast majority compete on the ITF World Tennis Tour. The lowest rung of the professional game, it's a far cry from ATP tournaments where elite players battle it out for bumper paychecks. British tennis pro Andrew Watson plies his trade on the ITF Tour and has agreed to tell me what it's like. Andrew Watson, I think I'm 650-ish ATP, maybe around the 1 or 200 mark on the ITF. I think I'm top 13 GB. Day-to-day routine is pretty tough. You know, you're waking up early, you're always looking for the cheapest way to get to the tennis club. If there's no shuttles, you're splitting Ubers with a bunch of guys. The hotel laundries are always pretty expensive, so we'll always have to walk down the street to a laundrette, wash your clothes, unless you want to hand-wash your stuff in your bathtub or something that's different. Do you ever do that? I've done, yeah, for sure. You have to sometimes. It's very rare you ever make money. You have to essentially probably make at least the semi-finals every week to make money. For Andrew, the ITF Tour offers a vital first step on the path to a career in professional tennis. And like most players, he's playing fair, playing by the rules, and is determined to make an honest living despite the lack of financial reward. But for some... There are quicker ways to profit from the game. Chapter 2 The Player By the age of 16, Kareem Bassam was counted among the sport's top junior players, peaking at 11 in the global rankings. In 2012, he made the step from junior level up to the ITF Tour. At first, he was on the up-and-up. He won four tournaments inside his first two years and reached a career high of 337th in the world. Sharif Sabri, a former tennis pro and a fellow Egyptian, remembers spending time on tour with Kareem in those early days. Honestly, he was one of the best players coming up in Egypt. He was going really strong and then somewhere he just stopped. And then he's, he didn't practice as much. He had some injuries and think maybe some family problems i don't know he told me man um, i just uh, not interested in it anymore i don't feel joy to play chapter three the approach i got to start coaching like twice he offered me one time for one semi-finals that's when i was playing pretty good that was like two years ago or something so yeah it was a semi-finals he offered me to lose the match for i get for three thousand dollars he came to my room and he offered me $3,000 and I said no and I won the match. That's Kareem Usham recalling his early experiences with match fixers. 
twice. He claims to have refused offers worth thousands of pounds. But eventually, he cracked. The interview recordings you've heard were made in a Tunisian hotel room. Investigators with the Tennis Integrity Unit, the organisation charged with ridding pro tennis of match fixing, had called him in for on-the-record questioning. They suspected Assam, and over a series of interviews lasting six hours, he recounted how and why he became involved in one of tennis's biggest ever match-fixing rings. In the immediate aftermath of those interviews, Korea messaged his brother, Youssef, on social media. Youssef also plays tennis professionally and is currently Egypt's number two. These are the messages they sent to each other. We've had actors say their words. What happened? They caught me in the room, my bro. Chill. They investigated me and took my mobile. And I was stupid and I didn't delete some things. Hussam was first suspended, then banned from tennis for life and fined $15,000. Ordinarily, whilst punishments such as bans and suspensions are publicised, the TIU placed the details, the fine print of these types of allegations and subsequent bans under lock and key. And Hussam's case is no different. The BBC has come by this information courtesy of a confidential source. And so, we can now reveal the inner workings, the mechanics of match-fixing in modern professional tennis. Chapter 4 The Fix The definition of match-fixing is set in stone and reads as follows. The action or practice of dishonestly determining the outcome of a match before it is played. But these days, it's no longer a case of betting solely on who wins and who loses. There are around 100 kinds of specialities on tennis. 100, 100, I'm talking, 100, not 10, 100. That's the voice of Francesco Barranca. He's General Secretary at Federbet, a non-profit federation which specialises in the detection and prevention of illegal practices in sports betting. Oh, there is uh, plenty of possibility to bet on tennis. Now it's possible to bet or uh, on uh, who is the tennis player that is going to win the fourth point uh, on the second game of the second set. Or who is, will be the tennis player will start to serve. Will be a tiebreak in the game. It's unlimited possibility to bet on tennis. And this is a problem because of match fixing. What's more, the provision of live data, streamed right from the umpire's chair to laptops and mobile phones across the globe, has led to a sharp increase in the number of bets placed on matches at ITF level. With unlimited possibilities come unlimited opportunities to fix matches and to cash in by legal means. Richard Ings, formerly of the Association of Tennis Professionals, or ATP, thinks it's a risky business. I think that every level of tennis is at risk, but I think the greater risk is at the lower levels of tennis. Very tiny tournaments in very obscure parts of the world with largely unranked uh, players maybe earning a few hundred dollars for winning the entire tournament, and most importantly where the on-site security is basically non-existent. There's the opportunity and the motive 
to be involved in uh, trading a set and, and making a few thousand dollars. It allows a, a fruitful environment for corrupt elements to enter the game. In his interviews with the Tennis Integrity Unit, Hussam cited financial difficulties as the chief reason why he became involved in match-fixing in the first place. His father, who had funded him for many years, could, Kareem claimed, no longer offer support. So, when, for the third time, Kareem was tapped up by a fixer, he decided to take the risk and the money. He was the one approaching me when I did my first doubles match in my career. And, uh, yeah, he offered me to, like, uh, just uh, second set and get uh, $800. He just came to me directly. Uh, he was like, you want to lose doubles and get $800? The BBC has obtained access to official documentation drafted by the Tennis Integrity Unit, which outlines the offences Karim Sam is alleged to have committed and the people with whom he is said to have conspired. Based on that evidence, we believe the fixer who allegedly approached Karim is a professional tennis player from Eastern Europe who we cannot name for legal reasons. Between 2013 and 2014, this man is alleged to have made four separate approaches to Kareem Hussam, two of which resulted in the final score of a tournament match being rigged. In total, we understand Kareem received $1,800 from him. And to this day, this fixer still competes on the ITF World Tennis Tour. I spoke to a tennis insider with in-depth knowledge of how he operates and what dealings he has had with Sam. To protect his identity, an actor will say his words. The first meeting Sharm Sheikh, I think in 2013. A lot of players knew he was a fixer, but he never got reported. He made a general offer to Hossam back then that if he needed to fix any match, he could come to him. Chapter 5 The Player Turns Fixer Over the four years Kareem Hassam's match-fixing went unchecked, he built up a network of co-conspirators. That network consisted of other players and of gamblers. Evidence we have seen in documents and social media messages implicate more than 20 current and former players in either working with Hissam to fix matches or failing to tell the authorities when they've been approached, a punishable offence under the Tennis Anti-Corruption Programme. Some of those players are still competing in tournaments. The majority of these players hail from African nations like Egypt, Morocco and Algeria. Others are from across Europe. One of the players is Konstantinos Mikos, a Greek national he played professional tennis on the ITF tour before receiving a lifetime ban for match-fixing in 2017. As a result, he was banned from all professional tennis with immediate effect. We understand that on at least two occasions in 2015, Mikos attempted to conspire with Karim to fix matches at ITF Futures tournaments in Egypt. Two years later, just months after he was banned for life from the sport, Mikos was still trying to fix matches. This time, the pair communicated via messages on social media, messages we have seen. It seems Hassan was brokering the fix with Mikos on another unnamed player's behalf. We've hired actors to say their words. 
his magazine and it's possible. Nice. We can do Mart 6,000 or set 4,000, whatever you want. Yes, we do set. When is confirm? Set one, he lose it. Confirm after one game. We can't reveal the specific match to which they're referring, but the intention is clear. We contacted Konstantinos Mikos for comment, but he is yet to respond. And further documents we've seen feature many others just like it. Here, Karima Sam is on social media with a player from Algeria. The pair are planning a fix, and Karim is dictating the terms of the agreement. Bro, can you tell him to lose second set six love? I sent him the confirmation, but he doesn't understand and ask me. So tell him to lose six love. I will give you $100 in return. Okay, told him he will lose six to zero second set. That day, the player they allegedly paid off lost 6-1, 6-0. The player involved in the illicit back and forth, however, appears to have played on the ITF tour until very recently. We contacted the TIU in relation to the number of players implicated in the match-fixing ring we've uncovered, and we asked why a number of them are still playing. They replied by saying they can't comment on ongoing investigations because public disclosure would alert suspects and could risk evidence being destroyed. Plus, confidentiality is needed to protect the identity of accused players who are regarded as innocent until proven guilty. They pointed out that since 2016, they have successfully prosecuted 44 individuals for corruption offences and issued 16 lifetime bans. Chapter 6 The Organised Crime Connection Kareem's involvement in match-fixing had deepened, and as time wore on, his network extended beyond current and former professional tennis players to more sinister figures from outside the game. Bro, you lose the first set, then win the match. You get 2500 Okay, hopefully it's okay because I need the money. God willing, we all need the money, my friend. You have to win, because if you lose second set, all of us are f- That is a further secret exchange between Kareem and a fellow player over social media, in which the pair conspire to fix a match. Based on Assam's official charge notice, the BBC understands Kareem became involved with known betters and or corruptors based in Armenia. A forensic analysis of Kareem's phone conducted by TIU investigators revealed numerous images of paperwork relating to moneygram transfers to individuals in Egypt from individuals in Armenia. The links between match-fixing and Armenian criminal gangs have surfaced publicly in recent years. In Belgium, in July of 2018, five Armenians were charged with corruption, money laundering and other crimes as part of an international investigation into match-fixing in tennis. Come in today ...because law enforcement officials in Spain have arrested 15 people in an investigation into tennis match-fixing. Uh, they put out this press release... They say 83 people were implicated, 
Among them, 28... Those arrests were made in January of this year by Spain's Civil Guard during a series of raids. 28 tennis players from the ITF Futures and Challenger Tours were implicated following the investigation. And the criminal gang pulling the strings was Armenian in origin. Europol played a big part in both the Spanish and Belgian operations. So I contacted Pedro Felicio, head of their economic and property crime unit, to dig a little deeper. We see that these are the results of a major uh, Armenian organized crime group that we have identified within Europe. We are talking about a polycriminal uh, organized crime group that uh, commits crimes in several different areas, so it's not only sports corruption, although sports corruption appears to be one of the main uh, activities that they're involved in because, of course, of the huge profits that it's capable of generating. The biggest market that's being actually uh, abused by criminal organizations is still football. Although we would consider that tennis is probably now on, uh, on number two within this list. At ITF level, players involved in match-fixing can, as we've heard, be paid significant sums of money. But as Francesco Barranca of Federbet explains, those figures pale in comparison to what organised criminal operations can make. There is a big, 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 big difference between the money that they receive, the players, and the money that the organization can make. Because the tennis player, they can pay him uh, according to some information they can pay him when they pay a lot, 500, 1,000 euro. And what they can make with betting, it's totally different because easily with a game, they can make 50,000, 100,000 euro. Chapter 7 The Solution There's no question that match-fixing is a serious, systemic issue within professional tennis and affects all levels of the game. In December of 2018, a final report into corruption in tennis was published by an independent review panel as appointed by the governing bodies of professional tennis. The report came in response to a joint BBC and BuzzFeed investigation which uncovered suspected illegal betting on professional tennis matches back in 2016. Almost three years in the writing, it makes a number of key recommendations, some of which are seen as controversial. Adam Lewis, a QC at Blackstone Chambers in London, led the three-person review panel. The problem was at all levels, but it was most acute and pervasive at the mid-levels, the ATP challengers, and at the lowest level, which was the ITF. The reasons for it were essentially that only 250 women players and only 350 men players can actually make money at the sport, can make a good living at the sport. So below that level, the next group of players are facing costs that exceed the actual return from the sport. On the ITF World Tennis Tour, the tournament prize pots amount to either $15,000 or $25,000. And one of the key recommendations to emerge from the report is a total blackout on live data for those competitions with a prize fund of fifteen grand. What we found is that the problem at the level of the 15s was particularly acute because the circumstances of players at that level made it more likely that they would breach integrity. By removing the official data, we seek to remove the opportunity of 
people who either wish to corrupt players or a player who wishes to self-fund corrupt betting. If there's no betting market in relation to your match, then you can't effectively match fix. We made contact with the ITF to ask if they agree that low financial rewards on tour fuel corruption and if they believe the removal of live data is the best option. They told us. We are very conscious of the need to improve conditions for players, particularly as they start out in professional tennis. Prize money increases alone would not materially benefit players due to the volume of players competing. But prize money across the ITF tournaments has risen from around $16 million in 2016 to around $23.5 million in 2018. They added... We're already taking steps to enhance integrity protection, such as the implementation of targeted removal of certain players' matches from betting markets. We're committed to protecting the integrity of tennis and putting in place the necessary measures to do that. There is a significant amount of work to do. Chapter 8 What now for Kareem Hossam? Despite his involvement in corruption, Karim Sam remains a free man. And based on further transcripts of conversations he had with TIU investigators, he had hoped for the punishment handed down to be less severe. Sharif Sabri, a former tennis pro and friend of Karim's, does, however, see the young Egyptian in a very different light. Have you spoken since, since he's been banned from tennis for life? We've spoken once. He told me um, he was very upset because now, like, it's all over the world and yeah. everything. And he did he say, "Look, I made a mistake here. I shouldn't have done this. I did do some of this." Yeah, he told me that uh, some stuff. Yeah, he said that he did, and uh, he was not really proud of. I don't think he would do it again. Like what he told me, like I don't think I would do it again if if I had the chance. But it's a shame, you know. As mentioned earlier, Sam was provisionally banned from professional tennis in June of 2017. And just days after being interviewed by the TIU, he messaged a fellow player to say the following. I got caught by the integrity, by the way. I'm going to bet even more now. And it seems he kept his promise. In July of 2018, Sam was banned for life from the game. But the confidential files we've seen suggest he continued to try and corrupt the sport. What you're about to hear is an exchange of messages carried out over social media between a Sam and a professional tennis player with whom he's alleged to have fixed matches in the past. These messages were sent at the beginning of August, more than a month after Sam received his ban. Confirm me fast, please, for 6-1. And tell him if he speaks to anyone, the guy will know and he will not pay. Okay, two minutes. Six, one, three thousand five hundred. Can it not be higher? I will try with him, but he told me three thousand at first. Is it okay, my bro, Kareem? Yes, bro. Confirm. Making sure, man. I'm scared. But it didn't work. Eventually, the fix fails. Problems, my friends, I swear. Same here, man. Maybe he spoke before us to a friend or someone. But we cannot bet, bro. I talked to him ten minutes after. He gets afraid. My friend, we need men, not babies. We asked the Tennis Integrity Unit if, in light of this new information, they'll be contacting Kareem Hassam for comment. 
they said. The governing bodies of tennis are strongly committed to enforcing suspensions and bans and take all practical measures to exclude any banned person from access to their tournaments. Kareem Hassam refused to be interviewed for this programme and did not respond when we notified him of the allegations and the issues that would be raised. Ultimately, it's key decisions made along the way that decided Hussam's fate. I think during this time I was going to go travel somewhere else after that and I didn't really need money so I wanted to sell one match and live. His first fix would seal his downfall and if ever there was a cautionary tale, it's his. disabled athletes go to win medals. Earlier this year, Assignment investigated how athletes and coaches game the system in order to achieve success. What followed was a parliamentary hearing in the UK into the way Paralympic athletes are classified and questions over whether the system was fit for purpose. And dissenting voices continue to contact us with serious accusations of bigger failures in the international Paralympic system. I'm Simon Cox, and in this edition of Assignment on the BBC World Service, we'll be exploring allegations of athletes deliberately faking symptoms in order to improve their chances of winning. Surely that can't be true, can it? Okay, so it's afternoon, we're going to warm up, 5-300s. We need to make sure that you're working on your skills off the walls, okay? So good underwaters. Swimming has dominated Simon Watkins' life. First as a coach in Wales, where his athletes won Commonwealth and Olympic medals before he moved to Australia, where he's been just as successful with disabled swimmers. I'm going to do a bit of a sprint session, okay? After the London Olympics in 2012, a new disabled athlete showed up at his club. A 15-year-old indigenous Australian girl with a gap-toothed broad smile called Amanda Fowler. I just started coaching at a small club in Sydney and she just came to the pool and asked if I would take her into my program. She was an S14, so intellectual disability swimming athlete. Simon's talking here about classification where athletes with similar levels of disability are placed in categories so that there's a level playing field. In swimming, for example, they range from S1 for the most disabled up to S10 for the least disabled. But Amanda Fowler wasn't in any of these impairment categories. She had an intellectual disability as an S14 swimmer. S14. Swimmers with an intellectual impairment, typically leading to difficulties with pattern recognition, memory and slower reaction time. She'd competed in this category at the London Paralympics and Simon Watkins was hopeful she could be a new swimming star. She was very competitive, certainly within the country. She got better while she was training with me. And for the 2013 World Championship team, she made the team and finished top 10 in the world at that meet. She'd done well, but to be really successful and tap into the maximum support from funding bodies, she needed to be a medal prospect. Like many young athletes, 
she had strong parental support from her mum, Kate, who was a well-known figure on the swimming circuit. But Simon Watkins began to worry about her involvement. Her mother started asking questions of my wife, who was a trainee classifier, about how Amanda would go about getting a, a physical classification. She also started questioning a family that was in my club, a swimmer I was coaching, who had a, a sort of rare genetic disorder that presented like cerebral palsy. And over a period of time, that questioning turned into then making statements that Amanda had the same type of genetic disorder. This was news to him. During his spell as her coach, Simon Watkins says he saw no physical disability and there was no mention of any in the official athlete's biography at the London 2012 Paralympics. And what did you make of that? This genetic condition, for want of a better word, was so rare that they were sort of one of 10 to 20 families worldwide. And, you know, to sort of end up with two people in the same pool, one of which had just come on during that period rather than being born with, I just obviously didn't believe it. And when her mom is having these conversations with you, what are you telling her? We're just saying, well, she doesn't have a physical disability, so there isn't a way that you get a classification for physical disability. There isn't one present. All right, let's go. Five, three hundred. Despite these concerns about her mum's intervention, Amanda Fowler remained as an intellectually disabled athlete with Simon as her coach. But at a training camp a few months later, he says he was approached by a senior official from the sports governing body swimming australia one of the staff approached me after a physio screening session to say look we could tell in there that she was trying to put on an issue with the leg and the foot which we don't believe is a a real issue i said to them look you need to tackle this with the family because i'm tackling it in my way and saying it doesn't exist but it needs to come from from other sources as well We obviously don't know what was going on, and this was just suspicion. There were concerns from other swimmers, though, and their families, about Amanda's classification. We spoke to a swimmer who we're calling Katie, who competed at the same time as Amanda. She's worried about any backlash, so this isn't her voice, it's an actor's. There was absolutely no sign of any sort of physical impairment. She was quite boisterous and used her arms quite a bit for emphasis when she was talking. When I first met her, she was looking at qualifying for the Australian swim team, but within a couple of months, she was no longer meeting the criteria, and I think that was when she began to explore other avenues and other classifications to potentially participate in. Simon Watkins had grown frustrated with Amanda Fowler's commitment. In 2014, he sent her home from a training camp as he felt she wasn't working hard enough. And stopped coaching her. He didn't see her again until a swimming competition in March 2015. He says he couldn't believe it when he saw Amanda was no longer competing as an intellectually disabled athlete, but as visually impaired. She had a white stick and was in a different classification. S13. Athletes with the least severe visual impairment, they have a visual field of less than 20 degrees radius. Were you surprised at that? 
yeah, amazed, I would say, rather than surprised. You know, this is a, a girl who's driving a car. To now be with a, a white stick, yeah, was quite unbelievable. All the coaches, nobody could really believe what we were all seeing. Whatever he and others thought, Amanda was now classified as visually impaired. Other athletes said she told them she'd given up driving. Fellow swimmer Katie saw her around this time at the pool using a white stick. She would walk along with it straight out in front of her and she wouldn't move the stick at all. She also would appear as if she was able to look exactly where she was going and the stick was almost a prop. You would have conversations with her and she would make direct eye contact with you for large periods of time and then it would almost be as if she suddenly realised she wasn't supposed to be able to make direct eye contact with you and would suddenly almost put on an act as if she couldn't see you and wouldn't be able to meet your eyes directly. We asked Swimming Australia about this, but they didn't respond. The Australian Paralympic Committee told us Amanda Fowler has multiple impairments and can therefore be classified with a physical, visual or intellectual disability. Her case, they said, wasn't unique. They pointed out that to achieve an international classification, all athletes must undergo rigorous medical testing and they strongly deny any knowledge of misconduct relating to classification. We also sent detailed questions to Amanda Fowler and her mother, but they didn't reply to us. This isn't the end of her story, though. There are other chapters that we'll come to later. Classification is the bedrock of Paralympic sport. It's carried out by volunteers who classify athletes based on how their disability affects their performance. Athletes first have to present medical documents from a doctor confirming their condition. They do tests on them. Then they're assessed by a technical classifier, often a coach in that sport and a medical classifier. Having done it for 20 years, I know how they present, I know what their foibles are. And what did that tell you when you have a, as you said, really experienced classifier who you could have conned? I thought I must be a better actor and I've probably missed my vocation, but also that maybe there have been occasions where I've been tricked a bit. I don't know. The majority of people who go into athletics with a disability are doing it for their own welfare to start with and then get the bug for the running or the jumping or the throwing. They're not out to cheat. It just so happens that there's so much money to be made these days. I think people would, if you could say, I've got a silver medal, they're more likely to get sponsorship for things. And so it has become more prevalent. Mark Woods is a former Paralympic swimmer from the UK. He won gold at the Athens Games in 2004, competed in three Paralympics and was at the London and Rio Games as a commentator. He's still actively involved around Paralympic sport and in regular contact with athletes. There are going to be people that will game the system whether they're able-bodied or disabled. And uh, to assume that disabled people won't do it because they're all nice is naive. And there's probably a similar percentage who will game the system as there are within Olympic sport. There are various ways that you could attempt to do it. I think that the red flags for me would be if you see somebody who goes to classification heavily fatigued. If you are put into a different category... How important can that be? What difference can that make to you? It could be huge. If you can imagine Anthony Joshua coming down a category to fight, what would those fights look like? I mean, they look pretty brutal already. I mean, if he was down a category, it would be a no contest. 
there's been concern about cheating through intentional misrepresentation for some time. Before the Rio Olympics in 2016, the International Paralympic Committee investigated 80 athletes, but none were found to have deliberately exaggerated their disability. The Australian swimmer Amanda Fowler is accused of is an extreme version of this. When we last heard about her, she was competing as a visually impaired swimmer. By late 2015, that was no longer the case. She was now a physically disabled athlete, an S8 swimmer. S8, swimmer with an amputation of one arm or significant restrictions across hip, knee and ankle joints. The general belief was that she had cerebral palsy. Her former coach, Simon Watkins, was astounded when he saw her competing again. She walked as if she had some type of impairment. I was just completely amazed by the whole situation. And at the same time at this meet, now her vision has returned. So she can see clearly now, but now she's got a physical impairment. Did you hear about anyone else raising any concerns at that event? Everybody was just in complete amazement, especially to the point of... When she got on the blocks and looked at a swimmer next to her who had the disability that she was presenting with and copied how she stood on the block. She copied um, her? Yeah, looked straight at her and copied exactly what action that swimmer was doing. And then the mother of that swimmer confronted her and her mother. She was so upset about it. Yeah, it was very, very worrying. He decided that he'd had enough and wrote to the governing body, Swimming Australia, to officially complain. Could you read some of it, what you'd actually said to them? Uh, so I say, um, this email's taken a few weeks to write because I've tried to let the initial disgust and anger subside before I contacted you. The absolute joke that the Fowler family from New South Wales have made of the classification system, and specifically the integrity of the system in Australia, has astounded me and makes the country a joke on the international scene. Swimming Australia told him the classification for Amanda was ongoing and shortly after this she disappeared from competitive swimming having not won any medals. We asked Swimming Australia about this but they didn't reply. The vast majority of athletes aren't involved in cheating but it's difficult to know exactly how many are. In our previous investigation, we were told that in 2017, the IPC was investigating a number of athletes and coaches suspected of intentional misrepresentation. They wouldn't tell us how many, but said it was fewer than 10. Now, we've learned that a British Paralympic medalist is currently being investigated for possible cheating. Grooming is a charged word, but others within Paralympic sport have told us similar stories of coaches coercing athletes over the level of their disability. We wanted to speak to the IPC, but they told us they don't comment on ongoing investigations. The British Paralympic Association introduced a new classification code earlier this year, making clearer what the responsibilities of athletes and of sporting organisations are. How often does its chief executive, Tim Hollingsworth, think that cheating is happening? I don't think... 
it's there in any sort of meaningful or major way at all. And that's for two reasons. On the one hand, I think fundamentally athletes would find that offensive. I think they recognise that their disability and therefore their classification is a fundamental part of their sporting life. But secondly, also, I think we've got a very much better system and processes in place to deal with the potential for intentional misrepresentation. And we can feel confident, therefore, that those two combined factors make it, in my view, not the issue that others suggest that it is. We've had people, though, who said to us at the top of Parasport, who've competed, talking about a toxic culture with some athletes, with coaches encouraging them to be more disabled than they are. I mean, that is worrying, isn't it, when you get someone talking about a toxic culture? Yeah, and I think the danger there is actually the extent to which that is something that can be demonstrably shown to be the case. Because in isolation, yes, it's worrying. But actually, where is the evidence? Can we see uh, more proof of that so that we can actually do something meaningful with it? There is a danger here again to say that is not complacency. That is not believing that things should not be considered or taken seriously. But at some point, you have to recognise there has to be a legitimacy to these complaints for them actually to be taken forward. And my own view is, is that I don't see that. I don't see that from the conversations that we have with governing bodies. I don't see that from the conversations that we have with athletes. Athletes. I think we have a very live, active membership of our own Athletes Commission who would certainly be keen to bring issues forward if they thought they were of merit to us. And hopefully, therefore, there's no blockage to that happening. Which brings us back to the case that's drawn most attention to this. The swimmer Amanda Fowler. In her short career, she competed as intellectually disabled and then a visually impaired athlete. In the Rio Olympics, she was a physically disabled athlete in a new sport. She'd swapped her goggles for pedals, competing as a cyclist. She didn't need her white stick anymore. There were no signs of her visual impairment. Now she was classified as a C2 cyclist. C2, rider with upper or lower limb impairments and moderate to severe neurological dysfunction. This wasn't the only difference. She changed her name to Amanda Reed. In interviews, she began discussing how she had cerebral palsy from birth, although she hadn't mentioned this when she was at London 2012. As a physically disabled cyclist, she did better than ever, winning a silver medal. If you look at footage of the medal ceremony at Rio, Amanda Reed is walking with one of her feet turned in and holding one of her arms, similar to signs of cerebral palsy. And her success troubled other Australian athletes, especially those who'd known her before. We spoke to one who we're calling Peter. We've got an actor to say his words as he's worried about repercussions. It was quite a shock to me to see how much things had changed. And was there a lot of chat? in the Australian team about the change? Yes, definitely. Uh, everyone was well aware of it. Uh, all these people having known her for many years and seen her present one way as a physically able-bodied person, uh, they were shocked, very shocked to see her now with CP. And I'm not exactly sure of her disability. I guess everyone was surprised and Silver is an incredible achievement in a Paralympic Games and you would hope for her competitors and for Amanda that everyone's classifications were as close to being correct as possible. Cycling's governing body, the UCI, said she'd followed the normal classification process, 
although they didn't say whether that was for multiple impairments or just one. They said they'll assess whether they need to investigate the allegations about her classification. When we asked Amanda and her mother about this, they didn't respond. The concern among some athletes was the apparent variation in her physical disabilities. So is this possible with cerebral palsy? So um, this is a MRI scan of somebody with cerebral palsy with rather subtle abnormalities. Richard Adam Grunewald and I'm Clinical Director of Neurosciences at Sheffield Teaching Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. Richard Grunewald isn't an expert in disabled sport, but he is a leading neurologist who's treated many patients with cerebral palsy. Could you be in a situation where you don't have any symptoms of cerebral palsy until maybe into your teens, then you have very severe symptoms and then they go away? The idea that you would suddenly be diagnosed as having quite severe cerebral palsy, I, that is something that would cause a weak arm or a visual impairment, and then uh, that only become apparent in your teens is not really plausible. And the idea that it might then get better or perhaps come and go isn't really feasible. The damage of cerebral palsy is permanent brain damage. It doesn't come and go. At the Rio Olympics, Amanda Reid appeared to have cerebral palsy-like symptoms, but we were past video footage from a year later in 2017, which has also been sent to the IPC. I'm watching it now, and the athlete who had a disabled arm and leg at Rio is now walking to her car. She's wearing flip-flops and shorts. She throws her bag into her car boot before casually getting into the driver's seat. Now, I showed it to the former classifier, Robert Shepherd. We see in front of us the car park, and then we can just see that same athlete just on the edge of the picture, and I'll just play you it. So you see she's, she's walking in flip-flops. What's strange about flip-flops? It's very, very difficult for a cerebral palsy athlete to keep the feet in an elevated position when they lift the foot up. So the flip-flop would just drop. It's just unusual. I've not seen it before. Let's say no. I've never seen a CP athlete in sandals, yes, but flip-flops, no. If you look at her feet, then they're... She's shifting from heel to toe on flip-flops and then walking quite comfortably to get in the car. Most CP athletes couldn't do that. She seems to have improved dramatically since taking the medal for cycling in Rio and that video there. Have you ever seen an athlete like that where they would improve so dramatically with cerebral palsy? It's not really possible that you will improve and it is very unlikely that you will make that degree of improvement. Maybe she is cerebral palsy, but the presentation that we've seen on these videos makes me doubt that she is of a level that would give her the classification she's got. The Australian Paralympic Committee told us Amanda Reid's classifications in swimming and cycling have followed the international rules and been conducted by classification panels. They said the panels follow a very thorough process, both in and out of competition. This isn't about one high-profile athlete. It's about a system where classifiers worry that they can be duped and allegations about athletes moving between sports to get the most preferential category, where governing bodies are failing to act on warnings about exploitation and where Mark Woods says it means some athletes are losing faith in the integrity of Paralympic sports. Within Paralympic sport, there are those who feel that playing the system is part of the game.